It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, February 10th, 2016. We will be doing our light episode today as we continue our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. Details forthwith. tuning in you're listening to fighting for the faith my name is chris rosebro i am your servant in jesus christ and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment the goal of which help you to think biblically help you to think critically help you slow down stop open up your bible and compare what people are saying in the name of god to the word of god no shortage of crazy and bizarre stuff being said out there we actually take the time to you know open up our bibles and (laughs) take a look and do some fact checking if you would Part of the process of learning good biblical discernment involves, well, learning how to recognize solid biblical teaching, which is exegetical in nature. And we've been listening to and working our way through a series of lectures by Pastor Jeremy Rohde of Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California, as he's been working his way through the book of Ecclesiastes. We're partway through chapter 4. Today we'll get through chapter 4 and into part of 5. And here's the next installment. Here we go. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to Ecclesiastes. We are in the midst of chapter 4. And what we've been discussing uh, last week is the rather shocking reality that humanity, uh, at its best, isn't very good. In fact, is depressingly and disappointingly evil. So that... Solomon has lamented that in the place of justice, where he went to find justice, the height of human ethic and morality, he finds instead wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, here one might think of the uh, mercy that are to be shown to the poor and oppressed. One might think of the temple of the Old Testament or the church of the new. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness so much for humanity and with that goes solomon's teaching that philanthropy or service to humanity or living your life for the betterment of humanity as good as it may be as a pursuit as a toil ultimately still falls under the heading and thesis of his book, The All is Vanity. So, again, those haunting questions of what do you live for? What is your purpose here? What is your reason for being and doing and getting out of bed in the morning? What is the reason for... uh, the suffering that you endure, and yet you march on. Why? To what end? And if your reason is in service of humanity, then Solomon would have you take a good hard look at that, an honest look at that, and say, it's a good pursuit, nothing wrong with that pursuit, but it too is under the curse and futility of God. It too is ultimately vanity and meaninglessness. 
It's a rather shocking thing for the Bible to tell us, and yet it's about to get all the more shocking, as we'll see. Uh, Luther, Luther has this to say, and this summarizes nicely um, <clears throat> the point that uh, Solomon has made in, in the early part of chapter 4, where he says, I thought the dead better than the living. In other words, better to be dead than alive. And better than being dead or alive is to have never have been. And Luther takes this up and says, if you consider the misery of human afflictions, and if you look only at this life, you will think that the dead are more fortunate than the living. One would rather be dead than see such misery and such calamities. Therefore, he that is Solomon is speaking not about the future judgment, but about things that happen under the sun, where it is better not to exist than to see human affliction. The Gentiles felt this way, for they say that it is best not to be born, or if one is born, to die early. Now that's the poet uh, Sophocles that Luther is quoting from. But who could we quote from? Lots of people. Only the good die young, right? And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's better to burn bright and die fast than to not burn at all, etc. The same idea that it's either better not to be or if you are to be, to live in such a way that you die early. Okay, so we find Luther, uh, the words of Luther can be haunting to us because if we look and perceive this life under the sun, first place we are but dust, we are but a vapor, another song, all we are is dust in the wind. Uh, We are but vapor, we're here for a moment and gone. I don't see this too much here in Southern California, but at the seminary, uh, back where it was humid and intolerable in the, uh, <laughs> in the summers, um, other times of the year, you'd go out and early in the morning and you'd look and there would be a thick mist, almost like a cloud, above the lawn and up against the edges of the forest. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Um, but you knew you had to take advantage of it and look at it and enjoy it because it's going to be gone in the blink of an eye as the sun rose up and cooked it off. It's sort of like the marine layer around here, you know. You wake up, it's nice and cool, it's lovely, and by 9.30 it's 200 degrees. Well, not usually, but this last year <laughs> it seems like it. At any rate, this is, this is the, the, the mist, the vapor that we are. This is what the psalmists take into their lips how quick we are, the non-existence, the transience of our life and being here. It's as if we're ghosts. And that's the language of Luther that haunts us. With better, it, it would be better to not be. And in fact, that's how many of us live and go through this life, either in an animalistic sense of, I'm just a pleasure. As Luther will say elsewhere, most of humanity lives its life like cattle. Like you're just a cow munching on one bit of grass. And you look up just long enough to find out the other pile of grass, and you eat it, and you just move from clump of grass to clump of grass to clump of grass, and then you die. Um, or even less than that, you sort of disappear intentionally. 
and you live your life as a ghost and you go through the motions and you have uh, you know, family and friends and you do all the things and you go to church, but you're not really there. You're never really there. You've exiled yourself because that's honest. It, would, it is better not to be than to be. So this is some of the existential crisis we as modern men feel so acutely. One of the ways that we feel this very acutely, and maybe this is the younger generations in particular, um, is we come to exist online rather than in the real world. So that our uh, relationships are now on the internet as opposed to in the real world. Our fun is on the internet as opposed to the real world. Because why? On the internet you can disappear. You're completely anonymous. It's not you. You don't exist. And there's great temptation and danger in that, of course, but it's so alluring because it's a way of being without being. It's a way that seems more honest to the younger generations than actually existing. Better to not exist on the internet than to not exist in real life fact, that existence online, there's more freedom, there's more flexibility. Anything that's there, you can do or be, you can change in an instant. Here in the real world, it's a lot harsher, it's a lot worse. So again, this is, all of this resonates, all of this that Solomon wrote so long ago continues to resonate with us, if not even become more acutely part of our experience in this modern world. All right. So then, uh, humanity is, uh, as good as it is to serve humanity, as noble a creature as it is to be human, and God has made us very good. Nonetheless, we are fallen individually and corporately, and any service to humanity is ultimately vanity in and of itself. If we look with the eyes of reason, if we look under the, at what's under the sun, now, Solomon goes on to say, and here we're uh, moving into like verses 9 and following, 9 through 12, that uh, it's not, you know, humanity, it's, it's not the end-all, be-all. It's better to have community. It's better to not be lonely. It's better for there to be two men rather than one man. man. But what's, what's most shocking about this section is what Solomon doesn't say. He doesn't say, and this is it, friendship. There's a loophole. Relationship, there's a loophole. Marriage, there's a loophole. These things are really worth it. Rather, he just goes right on. In other words, just as he says it's better to be wise than a fool, he laments the fact that the wise and the fool go to the same place. Just as it's better to have two than be alone, even in the end, the both the two, the lonely or the unlonely, go uh, to the same place. In other words, this too falls under his thesis of vanity. The all is vanity. So, we've seen Solomon do this before in an earlier chapter when, if you will, uh, you sort of get backed up by the bleakness of reality. And as you're backing up, you hit uh, your back hits against a wall, and that wall is God. Or to envision another way, you sort of come to rock bottom. And at rock bottom, there is God. And we saw this pattern for Solomon earlier in chapter 2, um, where he says, 
uh, in verse 24 and following, there's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also is from the hand of God. Now, earlier he said, I hate all my toils, so you have to keep that in mind. Then he goes on to describe what God's like if you're a theologian under the sun, if you're perceiving God with your eyes and with your reason. God is fickle, he goes on to describe. Whoever pleases God, apparently they please him because there's rich and there's poor, powerful and there's oppressed. And it's God who makes it that way. So God rewards some and punishes others. And this also is vanity and striving for the wind. So he sort of backs up against what he thinks is rock bottom, backs up against the wall, has God there, and then finds that God's not the answer either, at least as we perceive him under the sun and with our, with our unenlightened reason. Now that theme is picked up again here in chapter 5. And we're going to get there uh, so I want, to, I want you to keep that in mind then as we discuss uh, this next little section about the king and, and the, it's, better to be no, it's better to be nobody than somebody. Okay? Um, but I want you to keep that in mind that Solomon is here progressing along in such a way that he's going to once again sort of back up against God and deal with the question of God or the toil of religion more thoroughly. All right. So... Chapter 13 of verse 4, better was a poor and wise youth, and a youth in the ancient world, as maybe also today, has no status, very little power, if any. A poor and wise nobody, a poor and wise youth, is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. So this is a piece of wisdom, not unlike other things he's written in Proverbs. Uh, Better to be nobody and be wise than to be somebody and be stupid. Better to be nobody and be wise than to be someone who's so arrogant they no longer can take instruction. Now that's true in and of itself, but there's more to his meditation. Uh, Verse 14 Um, even though, or for, he went from prison to the throne. Now, I think even though is the better reading for us in English. It makes a little more sense. Even though he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor, or maybe a better reading, destitute. What does this mean? Um, It basically means... He who went from prison to the throne is his analogy of he who went from rags to riches. Though in his own kingdom he had been destitute. That's the rags. That's the rags, the destitution, the prison to the throne. So again, let's not lose the forest for the trees. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice, even though he went from prison to throne, from rags to riches. What's it saying? Better to be poor and wise than to go from rags to riches. That's that's the theme of these two verses when you take them on the whole. 
Now that sort of is against the American dream. It's all you know about rags to riches and Horatio Alger novels and pick yourself up by the bootstraps. And the American dream is that anyone can pursue happiness and and achieve it. And Solomon sort of calls that into question here. It would be better for you to remain poor and have wisdom than for you to go rags to riches and make it and have no wisdom. Does that make sense? Kind of is against our culture of selling out and doing whatever it takes to succeed, quote unquote. Uh, Solomon would call that into question and say, it'd be better if you didn't succeed, but you gained wisdom. All right, now we can also think here of, you know, a concrete example from the Old Testament, someone who goes from prison to throne. That's uh, like Joseph, right? Yeah, Joseph goes, uh, you know, he goes from the pit that his brothers threw him in to the king's house. In the king's house, he goes back, he goes down into prison. And then from prison, he ascends back up uh, to be second only to the, to the king. So you have a rags to riches story there like Joseph, a story of death and resurrections. Ultimately, is a type of Christ. That's who Joseph is. But if you want a concrete example of a youth who becomes a king, uh, or, a no, or a nobody who becomes somebody, then you could have Joseph in your mind. But again, in Solomon's wisdom, better to be a poor nobody than an unwise Joseph. Even, all, even after receiving all the miraculous things Joseph received, and even after making it as high as you could possibly go, better to be poor and wise than to be a rich king who's too foolish to take advice. Now, what this is doing in context, again, the idea has been humanity and going after this idea of uh, philanthropy isn't a toil, humanity isn't worth living for, is you see this paradox that even if you succeed, even if you find yourself at the top of humanity, or if you look at those who have succeeded and are paramount, are top of their class, are first amongst humanity, not many of them have wisdom. In fact, very, very few do. Whereas you're much more likely to hear wisdom come from the mouths of the poor and the mouths of those who have nothing and are nobody. All right, so again, we have sort of one of these themes of humanity at its peak isn't what it's cracked out to be. Going f uh, isn't, isn't what it's cracked up to be. Going rags to riches isn't what it's cracked up to be. And then he goes on with a, another concrete example in verse 15. I saw all the living who move about under the sun. Along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. In other words, he's picturing his successor, his son. There was no end of all the people, all whom he led. You'd think that would count for something. They all loved him at the time, right? Solomon continues, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. In other words, he, his reign, all he did will be forgotten. Surely this also is vanity and striving after the wind. Um, 
one of the members of the congregation, I don't see him in here, so I won't call him out by name, and I uh, have had some conversations in this vein. And uh, one of the themes that we've agreed to is ambition is overrated. Climbing the corporate ladder is overrated. Uh, so is, uh, you know, whatever that ladder looks like, whether it be in the corporate world or in the civic realm or whether it be in the uh, uh, ecclesiastical realm, ambition is overrated. Why? Well, in tune with what Solomon's teaching, you know, that you need to have enough ambition to get up off your duff. Laziness certainly isn't uh, commended by Solomon. And yet, neither is it commended that you climb and climb and climb and go from rags to riches. You go all the way to the top. You become the king. You're the successor of the king. Everyone loves you. And then you die, and so do they. And how long did that take? 20 years, 60 years, 80 years. I mean, it's a rather shocking thing to think that uh, 80 years from now, not one of us will be here. That's kind of a shocking thing, especially when you think how big and how long the world history has been. I mean, that's a blip. That's nothing. Are there some of you younger back there shaking your heads? Um. God have mercy if technology makes us live longer than we already do. Not sure that's so much of a blessing. Uh, okay, so the point is, um, the successor, the king, the guy who's up at the top, the guy who's gone from rags to riches, the youth who's made it, the man. Everyone loves him. He succeeds. He's success. He leads the people forth. It's a great boon for humanity while he's there and leading. And then he's gone and so are they and he's forgotten. And it's forgotten. And what was the point? What did you have? Five years, ten years, twenty years, thirty years, fifty years? This tiny little blip, this mist, this vapor, this dust that was success? Congratulations. If that's what you lived for and that was your end-all, be-all, pretty small. Pretty small. So I like that. Ambition is overrated. It's one of my new themes. All right. So much for the peak that is humanity and the peak that is human achievement, the peak of going from rags to riches, of making it, of being the best in your field, the most successful, the most celebrated. You made it. And no sooner than you made it, you pat yourself on the back and you have a toast, you're dead. Okay. Any questions or comments there? If you can tell, we've sort of backed our way up against the problem of, uh, okay, so it's all meaningless, it's all vain, now what? And we're going to see God reemerge, but not in the usual Sunday school way that you might expect him. Um, is uh, this little section autobiographical? You talked about Joseph, but I was seeing David, Solomon's father, mm-hmm. going from a shepherd boy to the king. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that sure could be. That sure could be. And other people, other people also, you know, see Solomon being even more autobiographical. For example, an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Um, some scholars who try to piece together a chronology of, of Solomon's life, uh, it's given to us elsewhere in Scripture. Remember that Solomon... Um, 
was sort of overcome by the gods of his wives and started celebrating them as well and really had a fall from faith. And it's speculated that this is that he's reflecting back on that period of time in his life that he's since come to repentance and he's since written uh, a mature piece of theology, his final piece of theology being Ecclesiastes. So it would sort of go Song of Songs. He wrote when he was young, you know, because it's all about love and wives and you know, the, the, the girl. And uh, of course, it's more than that. But it's 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 life as love. It's it's living life, uh, having your life philosophy be love, and then he sort of moves on from that and matures in in Proverbs, and it's uh, you know it's more traditional wisdom, and uh, there is in throughout Proverbs um, the allure, especially the first nine chapters, the allure of a female that brings uh, ruin the man who chases after her. A very different tone um, to be faithful to the first woman and not follow the woman uh, because if you chase after her, she's going to lead you away from God and into foolishness. Uh, Very interesting considering what ends up happening to Solomon. And then he sort of comes to his senses, arguably, here in his last book, in his most mature book, Ecclesiastes, and is very autobiographically saying an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. What did it profit me? I gained the whole world and I'd lost my soul type of language. It would have been better if I had nothing, if I lost the whole world and yet had my soul. Uh, so, Gordon, that yeah, David may be in view here, and we can certainly think about that. Solomon himself may be in view. Prison to throne, it's unavoidable to suggest uh, Joseph might Uh, at least be an example of this. But again, when you take all these verses on the whole and you look at them all together, the overarching theme of them is is simple, that it would be better to be nobody and have wisdom than to be somebody and have no wisdom. Uh, Yes, right here. Just a small comment. Um, What was really illustrative to us was seeing Julius Caesar's tomb in the Forum, which is now just a sort of a mound of dirt. It's only about maybe a foot high at the most. And, you know, you realize that this great leader, supposedly, uh, that that's all that's left. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. And, uh, you know, we hide our graveyards here in Orange County. For lots of reasons. One of the chief reasons. What's that? People don't die in Orange County. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We've perfected plastic surgery to a point. We don't age and we don't die. Just become monsters. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. We, We, I mean, we hide it for so many reasons here in Orange County. Of course, it's not so simple, but... Uh, you know, one of, one of those reasons in view and in light of Ecclesiastes is a graveyard really lets you know, really puts perspective. We, we love to live under the illusion that we're here forever and everything we do matters, and it doesn't. And that the stuff we accumulate and have is ours forever, and it's not. And it takes a trip to a graveyard every once in a while. I think it'd be, if you've got kids, it'd be a really healthy thing. It sounds kind of morbid. 
but really healthy thing to take kids to a graveyard. You know, because in the old days, often in this country, the graveyard would surround the church. Now that's healthy. Because as you go to church every single Sunday, you're reminded of what our end is. You're reminded of how serious church is and what the whole point is. You're also reminded, don't go in here and think that you can teach something new and screw around and change everything, lest the dead majority surrounding the church rise up in their graves and kick you around. Right? Healthy in every way to have a graveyard around a church. So we hide our graveyards, uh, not least of which because they terrify us, not of ghosts and ghouls, but of the fact that our life itself is so fleeting, so vain, so short as to be meaningless and as to render all our ambitions and hopes meaningless. We hate that. We despair of that as modern humanity. And and to that, uh, Solomon would say, good, that's healthy, that's right. Because the answer isn't found there. The answer is found in what's outside of there. Uh, One who uh, comes under the sun, but is not himself from under the sun, namely the Word who is made flesh, the Christ who comes to dwell in this meaninglessness and to die to it, and to rise again, giving us the promise that there is more to it, and also giving us the rather uh, subversive ability to, in the face of complete meaninglessness, declare, no, this thing has meaning. Remember, even a cup of cold water, Jesus says, right? That little meaningless act, Jesus says, no, it matters if you did it to me. So again, the the answer isn't in the world. The answer is going to be in Christ. And that's the point. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, adds Christian. Quick break. When we come back, the balance of today's look Book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, and 5. Stay tuned, don't want to miss them. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> no, oh, no, oh, a pirate's life for me. We pillage, we plunder, we rifle, we loot, drink up, be hearty, yo ho. We kidnap and ravage and don't give a hoot, bring up, be hearty, yo ho. presents Church Day Select. Okay then, uh, Mr. Haas. The results of the test have come back. 
What are they, Doc? Uh, not good. That's what. What do you mean? What's wrong with me? Where do you want me to start? I is that all mine? That and the seven other stacks of paperwork just like it. Oh, dear. Oh, dear, indeed. I guess we can start off with the good news. Okay. You don't have cancer. Oh, thank God. Funny that you'd say that. Why? Now, don't get ahead of yourself. As I said before, you don't have cancer. And that's about it for the good news. Huh? Moving on. This here is an x-ray of your esophagus and your stomach. Wait! What are those? Please, try to stay calm while I explain the prognosis. What? For the sake of contrast, I've included the same type of x-ray from a healthy patient. Oh, no. Oh, no, indeed. Now, I've seen my fair share of cases like these, but nothing is ever compared to what you've got going on. Uh, are those... Yes. Those are pentagrams emblazoned on the unprotected skin of your esophagus. Is that the reason For that... your heartburn? Oh, no. Not even close. If you look closely, we have identified this black lump in your stomach as brimstone. That is the cause of your heartburn. And no, Nexium won't fix it. How can this be happening to me? Well, to put it simply... You've contracted a religiously transmitted disease. But how? Well, there are many ways. One of the more common ways is to preach heresy and to openly accept the teaching of the devil and his ways. But, 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 but... Oh, trust me, this is only the tip of the iceberg. Do you know how much sulfur we found in your colon? You found what in my what? Sulfur. You see, it's normal to find in some of the victims of possession. But you were something extraordinary. We found three whole pounds of it in there. Three pounds? Don't even get me started on the pH of your blood, though. Hoo-wee! There was some nasty stuff. Melted right through our equipment when one vial exploded in the centrifuge. Yes, sir. You've got yourself a really nasty religiously transmitted disease. What am I going to do? For starters, I would stop spewing those lies you pass off as sermons down at your church. That should start to alleviate some of the burning sensations. I on that note, I would suggest some good old-fashioned expository teaching because the only thing that's going to fight off this disease is the Word of God. I can't believe what I'm hearing! That's obvious. You certainly won't be able to unless the Father himself draws you. There's got to be an easier way! i got to ask you, have you considered baptism? What's that got to do with anything? Oh, I don't know. Circumcision of the heart not done by human hands for the forgiveness of your sins. Ring any bells? You're not being helpful! Well, if you don't want to do any of that, I guess all I can do is fill out your prescriptions. Here you go. What? What's a three-month supply of vision lack supposed to do? Oh, trust me. You're gonna need it. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you 
to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheap O'Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheap O'Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think all those people talking about fulfilling dream destiny thingies <laughs> have no clue what the Bible's about. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute well, an amount that you choose. That's right. When you join our crew, you pick your rank. Ranked is based upon your monthly commitment. Powder Monkey is our lowest rank at $9.95 a month. Gunner's Mate, $24.95. Master Gunner, $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. These are great ways to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, filling it out there, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly, truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's uh, sermon, lecture, teaching, exegetical jaunt through the uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4 and into 5. Here again is Pastor Jeremy Rohde. Okay, Estella. Well, after, you know, your explanation right now, but um, everything that that we were learning or listening from you, it created questions like, you know, what is wisdom and who has wisdom and how is wisdom granted? Because the best good deed, you know, from men really evil and all that's why the result or the fruit of all this pain and oppression towards humanity come come mostly comes from man mm-hmm. so, yeah so thank you for that question that's a that's a great question um, if you're going to do your theology with Solomon under the sun 
then wisdom doesn't mean anything particularly spiritual or Christian. Although later on, particularly in the New Testament, that's exactly how wisdom is used. Right? And the way we're sort of thinking about it is, uh, we're used to thinking about it as Christians, is uh, wisdom is simply Christ. So that a little child or someone with not much intellectual power or uh, someone with not so much of an IQ is nonetheless more wise than Stephen Hawking or Hawking or the wisest, smartest, most intelligent scientist because intelligence isn't wisdom, nor is the wisdom of the world wisdom, but rather wisdom is Christ. Christ is our wisdom. So that's the, the dynamic we're used to having. And of course, that knowledge, that wisdom comes specifically from God. So anyway, this is the paradigm we're familiar with. But to backtrack, if we to ask this question, what is wisdom doing our theology via Ecclesiastes that is under the sun, then of course wisdom is God-given. Uh, but wisdom isn't anything that necessarily leads to God. Wisdom is more a matter of honesty and seeing through the lies and deceptions that we human beings tell ourselves. So if Ecclesiastes is wisdom, what is Ecclesiastes all about? Undermining, destroying, and casting down all the lies we humans build our lives around and protect ourselves with. Now, we know, of course, that that wisdom comes from God because that's the wisdom and the power that destroys our idols for us. It gets us to see that this whole world is basically uh, the pot of porridge. And we ought not sell our birthright for this pot of porridge. We have to realize that we have a birthright. We're inheritors of the Heavenly Father who has so much more than this. Uh, so again, wisdom in Ecclesiastes is, to a degree, smarts, brain power, but more than that, uh, the willingness to see it with your eyes open and to be brutally honest about it and to not allow yourself to lie or not allow the lies of others to manipulate. You know, I look around the room and I see so many young people and then I look at myself, and I understand Ecclesiastes probably differently than they do because I'm older. But And Solomon wrote this as an older man. He's going to relinquish his kingdom. I mean, there's going to be things that happen, and he's looking back. So I think not unfair perhaps, but um, a little troubling when a young person reads this, you know, I don't want him to be homeless under a bridge and wise. I want them to strive because that I, I feel that's our, our God-given job in this world, to yeah. strive, to do the best we can. So how does a young person look at this? Good question, Alice. And, you know, if we were reading this continuously in continuity without week break, you know, week-long breaks between the sessions, this would be much more clear to us because Solomon actually lays the foundation in the verses immediately prior that are going to preclude us from all just you know, uh, being the dude from Big Lebowski, you know, uh, from being just slackers and saying, look, here, you want a proof text? Read this, you know. I kind of tried that for a while and as a teenager, but then my dad corrected me as a Lutheran pastor. Uh, <laughs> it was obnoxious. But the, uh, you know, so Alice, what I'm talking about is chapter 4, um, 
verses 4 through 6, where first of all he critiques toil and skill in work because they're done from the wrong motive, that human beings don't work the way God gave us work in the garden. You know, work is good, actually. I can't wait to get to heaven so I, and the new heavens and the new earth so I can never lift a finger again. That's dumb. Work is good. Uh, you know, and, and you know this when you don't have to do something, but you want to do it. You know, your hobby, whether you admit it or not, is often work. Work is good. We're meant for work. We're designed for work. We're designed to help things along, to tend to the garden, etc. Uh, but the problem that Solomon points out is since the fall, our motivation for work is wrong. And more often than not, if not always, it's motivated rather by envy of another and all the multi-form that that takes. Okay, so that's his first critique, is uh, we work for the wrong reasons. Then his next critique, okay, uh, verse 6, better is a handful of, or excuse me, verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. So the fool aspires to be the dude from Big Lebowski. The fool is the teenager who says, eh, Pastor Rohde said ambition is overrated, so, you know, because uh, this is precluded from Sol- by Solomon. The fool folds his, hand, folds his hands and eats his own flesh. You know, he sits there with idle hands and uh, doesn't eat. The man who doesn't work doesn't eat, and his body eats itself, and he's emaciated. And Okay, and that, so we don't want to be lazy. And then on the other hand, look, uh, verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness, (laughs) here's the paradox, right, than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. So you don't want your hands folded in laziness, nor do you want both hands working feverishly all the time. Those would be the two extremes to avoid. Rather have a handful of quietness and yet also have your hands unfolded in work. Now with that foundation, then we're ready to go into the next and say, with that in mind, with that foundation laid, we can see how ambition unbridled or actually making it uh, is itself vain and futile. Okay. Yes, sir. Offering a flip side as a young person, I found that Ecclesiastes has tended to drive my work towards Christ, seeing that it is not the end-all, be-all. Be- getting an A in the class, that's not the end-all, be-all, but knowing that it is done through Christ makes it meaningful. Right. Absolutely. And that's the sum total. Remember, if you take Ecclesiastes in a vacuum, like you knew nothing of Christ and you take Ecclesiastes in a vacuum, you wouldn't be able to come to that conclusion. Uh, But we're not in a vacuum. We have Christ. And so we see Ecclesiastes as the tool, then, if we're going to use it in our own, toward our own souls and the good of our own souls, It's a tool, then, to negate and destroy the false idols in us and to remind us ever that our works and deeds have meaning because Christ became flesh, because His works and deeds, namely the cross, cleanse our works and deeds. And as Revelation 14 confirms, the works of the saints, our works, cleansed by His blood, follow us into eternity. Now, just what that means... We don't know. Eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard. But it's incredible 
Revelation also talks this way that the good things of the nations follow and are brought into the city of God at the end. So this life, because it has been redeemed by Christ, this world, because it has been redeemed by Christ, because it is going to be made new, which is discontinuity, there's also a continuity there that the Scriptures merely state, hey, it's there. But they don't tell us what that's going to look like. You know, I mean, to use, to use just a picture, it's like you plant a seed here and it's completely meaningless, okay? And only to discover that in the new heavens and the new earth, it's blossomed into a huge oak and the birds are resting in it and the children are playing under it. That's the sort of thing we're doing. You give that cup of cold water now and you find out later that that cup of cold water somehow resulted in that person's well-being, understanding the grace and mercy of Christ, being ready for the gospel, and are there in eternal life with you. And again, that's maybe overblown and overdramatic, but it's the picture. What you do here has the appearance of meaninglessness. Do it anyway. That work is going to follow you in some way that we can't comprehend or conceive into the new heavens and the new earth. Thanks for your comment. Yes, sir. Um, <clears throat> uh, Solomon was no saint. He had all the desires that he tried to fulfill. Yeah. He went to every extreme to fulfill all his desires. But I found a good quote. It says, Vanity, don't pursue vanity. Honor God and die well. Everything else is meaningless. I like it. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And you know, Solomon, I think the beautiful thing about Solomon, of course about all the Old Testament saints, is that they are no saints, and yet they are. Right? I mean, if you look at the saints of the Old Testament, you find out real quick they aren't very saintly. They're very, very real people. Um, Nitty-gritty, fouled up, screwed up, unfaithful here, unloyal there, not keeping God's word, keeping God's word, a mess and a muddle are all the saints of God. Because what makes us saints, literally hagioi, holy ones, is not our doing, but the doing of Christ. The works of His hand, His cleansing blood over the top of us. So, yeah, that's, I think you're right, Jack. That's the beauty of a guy like Solomon. He's no saint, and yet he is. Okay. I was going to say, like, all Scripture is law and gospel. I think what we see here in Ecclesiastes is the law under the S-U-N poking its finger at us and saying, this is you, this is you in your sinful state, your need for a Savior, and convicting us to help us see under the S-O-N to see the gospel. And so that's why we're wrestling every Sunday with every single verse because we have to look at it first in its law perspective so then we can then be convicted of our sin to appreciate the gospel passage portion of it. Right, right. The great challenge of Ecclesiastes is, take me, use me, I am your tool, I am your worldview, I am truth. Uh, And then to hold all of that, intention though it may be, with the gospel and with the meaningfulness that Christ imbues, we want both of these things. We don't want one or the other or we're going to fall into a trap. I mean, if, I guess if you just had Ecclesiastes, you'd probably be some bitter existential philosopher. 
But if you ignore Ecclesiastes and the, question, it, it, the questions that it asks, you're going to end up being a superficial Christian, probably theologian of glory, happy clappy, the world is great, on your deathbed I can't tell you that, yeah, this is evil. I have to tell you, oh, God's getting his glory, it's okay. You know, again, we have to hold both of these in tension if we want to, you know, it's like Emperor Palpatine. You want to be a truly good and wise ruler. If you want to be a truly good and wise Christian, you need to, you need to embrace a larger view of the force. Not only the light side, but also the dark side. Not only Jesus, but also Ecclesiastes. You want to have both under your command. Okay. Never watched Star Wars. I apologize. Where are we at? I thought I saw. It. That's it. Okay, on to God with what little time we have left. So you would expect God, you know, via Sunday school and via God's always the answer and God's always safe, you'd expect that God is the answer. In fact, it is rather stunning what he has to say. Chapter 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. What does that mean? God isn't safe? (laughs) I thought that, you know, when humanity follows me, uh, uh, you know, fails me, and kings fail me, and justice and righteousness fail me, and all the toils and the pursuits and work and and everything else fails me. I can always just swan dive right into God. Hi, Lord. How are you, buddy, old pal? Everything's great. Everything's good. Guard your steps, Solomon says, when you go to the house of God. Shocking. It's stunning. It's surprising. And what follows is even more so. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. What on earth is being talked about? Didn't God institute the sacrifices of His temple? Of course He did. What on earth is being juxtaposed here? It's better to go with your ears open than to go and do the sacrifices. It's sort of like a Mary Martha thing, isn't it? You sort of get that vibe. Uh, There's more to it than that, of course. Let's continue. It's better to draw near to listen than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. What? You can go to church, sing the hymns, donate your money in the plate, offer the sacrifice, right? You can go and do everything that God has ordained and that God has set up to do, and it is all what? Evil? How can that be? How on earth can that be? Now, there is such genius and subversive theology here. It is incredibly fun. It is incredibly fun. Religion under the sun, even if it's the religion that God himself has set up, is evil. How can that be? How can that be? Um, It's C.F.W. Walther, one of our American Lutheran theologians, generally very good, uh, who says that a fallen human being 
can choose to be a Christian. That is, he can choose to go to a Christian church. He can choose to be a Muslim. Wrap yourself up and do the thing. Choose to be a Hindu in Boulder, Colorado, you know, where, where I spend some time, you know. Fast trap, you know, if you, if you don't want to sit there and meditate on nothing, then smoke something and meditate on something, you know. Uh, okay? A human being under the sun can pick whatever religion he wants, even Yahweh's religion. Now, we're in an Old Testament context, so under the sun, you can go to the house of the Lord. You can go to the house of the Lord and offer all the sacrifices, go through all the motions, do exactly what He wants to do. He wants you to do. And it is what? Evil. Evil. Now, there are some remarkably deep things here that we can reflect on. We're not going to be able to reflect on them all. You can think of whatever is done apart from faith is evil by definition. Okay? Um, but this taps in to a very shocking and probably initially disturbing way that the prophets in the Old Testament speak about this sacrificial system that God has set up. For example, uh, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. God says, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Now, why I say that's initially disturbing is because isn't he the one who has instituted and commanded these very sacrifices? Ah. So what is, what, is the, what Solomon calls the sacrifice of fools? It's to go into these things under the sun as if by religion, by this toil, by doing these sacrifices, by doing more of them, I'm getting somewhere with God and accomplishing something. Yeah, where you're getting with God is further into evil, further into trouble, and He's despising you as you're sacrificing. Very unnerving that the toil of religion, even if it's Yahweh's religion, even if it's going to church and being a Sunday school church teacher and a Sunday school teacher and uh, serving on the council and volunteering my time. The pursuit and toil of religion, even if it's Yahweh's, is vanity. Amos chapter 5, which I think was our Old Testament reading uh, last Sunday, even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Psalm 51, verse 16. David is praying to God, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Now the next line points us in the right direction. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now we have a distinction. Now we have the sacrifice of fools and the sacrifice of the wise. The sacrifice of the fools is 
I'll go and I'll go through all the motions and my heart will stay every bit as evil and wicked and depraved as before. Right? Oh, what is it you want from me, God? If I, if I uh, do X, then you'll give me Y? If I do this thing, then you'll bless me? If I behave this way, then you'll shower good things upon me? That's the sacrifice of fools. And that's evil, Solomon says. And with him, all the prophets. Rather, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Now, for the sake of clarity, with a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, if you go and offer the sacrifices, that's different. But the point is that it's the broken and contrite heart that are not despised by God. That's the sacrifice of the wise. Okay, but the tension still isn't fully resolved. Or at least it only is anthropocentrically. Theocentrically, we look at Psalm 40, verse 6, and what the New Testament says about this. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Keep that in mind, that language, ears you have opened, because it's very important in this section. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Who's speaking? That's Christ. It's the pre-incarnate Christ speaking speaking to his Father about his coming incarnation. Then I said, that is Christ. See, when you pray the Psalms, you are unwittingly taken up into the conversation between the divine persons of the Holy Trinity. If we knew what we were doing in the Psalms, our minds would be so thoroughly blown and we'd be on our face because we are taken up into the very conversation that takes place within the Godhead itself. Unreal. Unreal. So that one moment... We're praying along and it's us and the next moment we're speaking what Christ speaks to the Father. It's only He who can say this. Then I said, Behold, I come. So, what's the context? Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Behold, I come. Why has Christ come? To be the sacrifice. To be the real righteousness. Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Here is the only righteous man. This gives us a hint of what it means to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Here is the only man who delights to do God's will. Who has God's law written in his heart. Right now, now we go to Hebrews 10 see how the New Testament interprets this. Hebrews 10, verse 5 is where we'll start because it's a quotation of this Psalm 40. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, so here you actually have your proof text that it's Christ speaking in this Psalm. He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. 
When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified, made holy, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Okay, so now in light of the S-O-N, right, in his light, we are fit to properly see what Solomon is after here in Ecclesiastes. Okay, better to come with your ears open than with the sacrifice of fools in your hand. For with the sacrifice of fools you do evil. God doesn't delight in sacrifice for sacrifice's sake. He doesn't delight in people who do only to try to please him so that that he gives them good stuff. Rather, all of this points to the sacrifice of his son, the one who comes, who delights to do his will, and who offers his body, as the author of Hebrews says, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all, we have been sanctified, made holy. Okay. Um, if you were just in church, or if you're headed there now, pay attention to the Old Testament reading, Zephaniah chapter 1. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. The the sacrifice that the Lord has prepared is His Son, Christ. So be silent. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. Now again, reflect on what Solomon says. Guard your steps when you go to the house of the Lord. Draw near to listen. In other words, shut your mouth, be silent, and listen. Because as my wife tells me, when my mouth's moving, my ears aren't working. I think it's true. Be silent, Zephaniah says. Draw near to listen, Solomon says. This is better than the sacrifice of fools. And as Zephaniah says, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. That's the point. The point is to draw near to the sacrifice that is Jesus, made once and for all in his body, and to hear what that sacrifice means for you. Because it means nothing less than your sanctification. That is, God making you Holy God making you his saints through this sacrifice. We're not nearly done with this section, but we're done with the time. So let's leave off here and pick right back up uh, next week. The Lord be with you. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard. On this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.